I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Kena Collins, congressional candidate for Illinois' 7th Congressional District for the U.S. House of Representatives. Kena Collins is an activist and a gun violence prevention and health care advocate. I've interviewed a lot of women running for office for the electorate, and they're all strong and they're all brave. And Kena Collins is no exception. She's incredibly inspiring, as you'll hear in this conversation. We need women like Kena Collins in Congress. So I hope after listening to this, you're inspired to support her campaign for the House. I'll leave details in today's show notes about how you can support her campaign. And in the meanwhile, enjoy this conversation with Kena Collins. Kena Collins, welcome to the podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. So tell me about your election. You're running for the House in Illinois in the 7th Congressional District, right? Yes, Illinois 7th Congressional District. What's the incumbent situation? I should have asked you that beforehand. Danny? Yeah. Danny Davis? Congressman Davis is the congressman. He's been the congressman for the last 22 years. He's So that's basically, he's been my congressman my whole life. <laughs> Practically, <laughs> I'm 28. Um, I've lived in the district my whole life. And so, yeah, he's had primary challengers before, but this is the first time that he's had a woman of color under 30 run against him. That's what I was wondering. I was like, I was looking up the race. I was like, why isn't there much information about him? Oh, because he's been in office for 22 years. He's been in office a really long time. He, before he became a congressman, he was a Cook County commissioner. And before he was a commissioner for the county, he was a alderman in the city council. So he's been around for about 40 years. But he's not retiring. You're just challenging him. No, I'm primarying him. I'm primarying him. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your run. Thank you. So you're from Chicago, right? But you've been an activist there and a community organizer since you were really young. Absolutely. I was born and raised in the district that I'm running in on the west side Chicago portion of the district, which is uh, called the Austin community. Austin is one of the marginalized communities in the district. And, you know, there's a lot of beauty. You know, I always think that we have to be careful with our language and like the places that we come from because it's so much beauty and greatness and brilliance that comes out of Austin. But definitely, you know, some heartbreak too. So when I was about seven years old, I witnessed a child in my neighborhood shot and murdered in front of my home. Um, I knew the shooter, I knew the victim, and it changed the entire trajectory of my life. And so, yes, I started, um, my background is in gun violence prevention and criminal justice reform work because I was able to humanize both the victim and the shooter and that situation. So I've been organizing in the city of Chicago since I was a little grasshopper in Chicago public schools, doing anti-violence work, working with violence interrupters, and pushing the narrative about why we need to include the voices of communities of color in everyday gun violence. Wow. You were seven years old. Yeah, I was Seven. Um, you know that what they say. I always remember um, Ayanna Presley's quote. You know, she says the people who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Absolutely. You know, people love to talk about Chicago. You know, people from the outside, people from outside of Chicago, and we know why that is, right? Like one of the most you know famous community organizers, yeah. <laughs> Barack Obama. You know, and they like to use Chicago as an example, but they don't really know what it's like to grow up there. Absolutely. People have a, a ton of misconceptions about the city of Chicago, and. That was the impetus for my run, was that we need young, millennial, people of color, women, those who are mostly impacted by things like gun violence, to be representing and being a, a return of representative democracy, essentially, in our U.S. Uh, House and in the Senate. Um, for me, 
that was a non-starter. If if I felt like you have not been engaged in some of the most pressing issues that have been plaguing our country and in our district, then you need to be primaried. Um, we know that the demographics and the folks who are greatly impacted by intracommunal violence oftentimes get faded out of the conversation or the national conversation and debate around gun violence. So for me, I wanted to bring that perspective. I wanted to let people know that we are organizing on the ground in these working class communities around gun violence. We don't just, you know, attend Black Lives Matter protests and 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 just talk about police brutality, even though excessive use of guns by police officers is gun violence. This is a conversation that's nuanced and it, it requires an intersectional approach on how to tackle it. So since he was, Danny Davis was in office since you were a kid, right? Or yes. Since you were little, I guess, yeah, because you're really young. Yeah. Have you been thinking about this for a while? Have you been thinking, you know, no, seriously, were you like plotting when you were in sixth grade thinking like, I'm going to, when I'm old enough, I'm going to get in there. You know, um, No, you know, the decision to run for Congress was a really organic decision. It was a culmination of things and it was a buildup. So I would say that in 2015, that was when President Obama was still in office in the city of Chicago, a tape was released of Laquan McDonald, who was a 17 year old kid from the south side of Chicago who was gunned down by a police officer a Chicago police officer, 16 times he was shot and murdered. Essentially, I was a part of that group of young activists who gathered in the city. And, you know, we said that we were going to participate in the economic boycott on Black Friday and shut down the wealthiest portion of the city of Chicago, which happens to be in my district that I'm running in. Um, And it changed the entire political landscape of the city of Chicago. And it showed us the power of the collective and of the community. And I think that was when I started to get the bug because what I realized was that the fight is not just in the protest front lines, they're in the policy rooms. And so I ended up writing my first piece of legislation in 2017. It was in direct response to Donald Trump getting rid of an Obama era policy called the White House Council on Women and Girls, which protected the civil liberties of women and girls in our country. I brought it back on the state level, um, got it passed in the House, passed in the Senate, and then I forced a Republican governor to sign it into law. And so um, my bill basically said that we would expand reproductive health care and education in Illinois. We would center the voices of women of color. We would center working class women. And we would include transgender women and girls in that conversation, too. And so um, House Bill 5544, the Illinois Council on Women and Girls Act, was my first taste of understanding that the way that we get progress is at the intersection of activism and policy. Yeah, I know. I read about that. And it was a historic civil rights legislation, right? The Illinois Council on Women and Girls. Absolutely. Yeah. And you did that. And you're now the chairman of it. Is that right? Well, actually, our lieutenant governor, Juliana Stratton, sits as the chair of the council. Um, It is comprised of 21 appointees from across the states of experts. I'm running for office and I, I wanted the constituents in my district to know that I'm all in on this. And so all of my attention has been on running for this congressional seat. But the women have been convening and uh, Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton is is leading the charge on the council right now. But this wasn't your first taste, obviously, because you've been an activist for a really long time. What was your first taste of success? You know, because you started doing this when you were just just a kid, really. Like, did you did you say this thing needs to be fixed in my neighborhood or in my district and I'm going to go for it? Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was organizing my peers in Chicago public schools, because what we know is that before anybody ever pulls the trigger, in an incidence of gun violence, the bullet is flying through the air. When we shut down public schools, when there's lead in the water, toxins in the air, when there's not an investment 
and the people in the community. We know the bullet is flying through the air. So I would say the first success that I got was getting through to my peers and getting them to become active in their respective communities as well. And once I understood that the way that we build powers is, is at the grassroots level. It, I just couldn't stop. <laughs> so one of the, the issues that you are passionate about is, you know, gun violence prevention in, in Chicago. And like I said before, you know, people love to hold up Chicago as an example, although they know nothing usually about living in your district or in your town, right? They just use it as, as an example. So what do you think the right solution for gun violence is there? So I definitely think that we are in the country, we're, we're looking at this in the wrong way. We need to be looking at gun violence as a public health epidemic and an emergency. If we had an Ebola outbreak, which we have had before, what would the CDC do? The Center for Disease Control would come in, they would isolate those outbreaks, and then they would try to stop it from spreading. And that's exactly what we have to do with gun violence. We have to understand that it, it's just not mutually exclusive to poor communities or Black and brown people. This is something that has impacted our entire country. And um, 30 to 40,000 people a year are dying by way of gun violence. It's one of the leading causes of death in our country. And the most frustrating part about it for me is that all of the deaths that we see by way of gun violence, they are 100% preventable. When these mass shootings happen, they could have been stopped. They could have been prevented. When we see street violence happening, it can be stopped. You know, I think one of the biggest solutions is looking at it as a public health epidemic, investing in trauma-informed care, really um, understanding that we have to invest in groups like Cure Violence, which takes the the model of not including more police officers. Um, Decriminalizing the way and the stance that we look at this is also very important. More police officers on the street is not going to stop violence, right? We know opportunity stops a bullet. We know great education, having the ability to climb up the ladder stops violence, and also having access to mental health facilities and programs also help stops violence. So it's it's multi-layered. And my first approach is to approach it as a public health epidemic. So, you know, that reminds me of what Julian Castro, you know, the presidential candidate, he said this a few times in the past couple of debates. And I think he said this in the gun gun violence prevention forum. You know, he said police violence is also gun violence. Right. And, you know, and, I, and I, when you said that, you know, the solution isn't just to pack more police on the street, which a lot of people like to do in, you know, big cities and in places like Chicago, they just think greater police presence. Yeah. Right. And we know that that's not the solution. Right. Yeah, it's it's not the solution. Using Chicago as a model, most majority of the Chicago police officers who patrol some of the most high risk neighborhoods in the city of Chicago are not even from those neighborhoods. So they don't have a rapport with the community. And I think that there's also not enough independent jurisdiction to put a check and balance on police officers. So a lot of the times when these police uh, involved shootings happen with civilians, it's being investigated internally. Well, the police cannot police themselves, right? So I think it needs to be civilian oversight that's put in place where we are giving the power back um, or putting the power back into the hands of the community. That's number one. Number two, I think that we, once again, the approach should be not to invest, continue to increase police budgets, take a decarceral approach on a lot of these. I, I, I like to call it decriminalizing poverty and investing in in the community and in other areas. In the city of Chicago, that is the biggest portion of the budget is the police budget. We're on the brink of a teacher strike right now in the city of Chicago, and it's because they're not getting paid enough. It's because teachers want fair contracts. 
It's because they want smaller class sizes. They don't want police officers in their school. They want nurses, librarians, PE teachers, music teachers, and social workers to help them with the load of what's happening in these schools. So we're seeing our government, once again, like I said, invest in increasing police budgets, and we're seeing a divestment in education, public housing, and and resources that could actually help the community. So can you tell me what trauma-informed care is? What does that mean exactly? Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically those who are experiencing trauma and essentially giving them the resources that they need. So the example that I could use is that wraparound services in schools. Police officers, we we know that when they deal with somebody or have had interactions with people who have PTSD, they're likely to shoot that individual if they're having an episode, right? Well, a counselor or a trained social worker can come in and de-escalate that situation. So it's basically coming up with programmatic ways of how do we de-escalate those who have experienced trauma up close um, and personal. So another thing that I know that you're passionate about is healthcare, and I know you support single payer healthcare and Medicare for all. So what is your vision specifically? And I'm asking that because I know that, you know, healthcare has become a a big, big issue in the primaries, in the Democratic primaries. And a lot of people, you know, they're conflating Medicare for all and universal healthcare and single payer. You know, they're kind of conflating all of those together. So what does it mean to you? Like, what are you specifically advocating for? Yeah, I, I operate under the philosophy of everybody in, nobody out. And that essentially means that if we are continuously investing in a healthcare system in our country that has some of the worst healthcare outcomes, is excluding people because they can't pay premiums, co-pays, deductibles, or afford high prescription drug costs, if it is not culturally competent, if we are not having an intersectional conversation about reproductive healthcare being healthcare and making sure that that is covered, then that's not a good healthcare plan. It's not sustainable for our country. And so um, that's what I talk about when I say Medicare for all. And I specifically believe and support in a single payer Medicare for all system. I don't believe that we need private insurance companies to basically tell us who can get quality health care in our country and who cannot based off of if they have, uh, if they can afford that private insurance. And I think there's an argument to be made that the United States of America is still the only developed industrialized country in the world that does not have a universal health care system to make sure that everybody is uh, has full access to quality health care in our country. So that's essentially what I mean when I say a single payer Medicare for all system and who should be included in that system. You know, what's unique in your district in terms of health care? What are the unique needs rather when you compare it to what's needed nationally? Because I know a lot of people, they forget that health care needs differ, you know, from community to community. You know, what works in a wealthy community doesn't work in a different community, right? And, you know, even within the same city, healthcare needs are different. So how do you think your vision for healthcare coverage would best help marginalized communities specifically? Oh my gosh, it's so it's so important. Currently in our country, there are millions of people who are uninsured and underinsured. And as a matter of fact, when I decided to run for office, I had to 
become a full-time candidate, which means I had to quit my job. And when I quit my job, I forfeited my health insurance because you can't afford your health insurance when you're not working and you have to budget in a certain way um, because you won't be working full time, you'll be a candidate full time. Um, so my story is very similar to those in my district and constituents in my district and individuals all across this country. A study just came out by NYU School of Medicine that found the largest life expectancy gaps between city and neighborhoods lie right within the Illinois 7th Congressional District. So we have a community in our district called Streeterville and Streeterville is a wealthy, affluent neighborhood in the city of Chicago. Chicago. If you travel nine miles uh, south to Inglewood, which is a predominantly black neighborhood, it is the average income, median income for that neighborhood is about $34,000 a year. Your life expectancy drops by 30 years just based on the zip code that you're in. So you have a life expectancy of 90 years of age in one neighborhood in Chicago. And then when you go to a a poor neighborhood in the city of Chicago, it drops to 60, which is a 30-year drop. It is the largest life expectancy gap in the country. And that was also an impetus for my run. I think that we have to come up with ways to close the equity gap across this country. Healthcare is literally everything. It's the water we drink. It's the air we breathe. It's the work conditions we work in. It's the access that we have to medical facilities, et cetera. And we know that the reasons that these equity gaps exist is because of the social determinants. Certain neighborhoods, there are food deserts. Certain neighborhoods have lead in the water. Certain neighborhoods have mold in the school walls, right? So all of those things contribute to your life expectancy dropping just based off of your zip code. And I don't think that's right. Wow. 90 to 60. Yep. 90 years old to 60. (laughs) In a 20 minute car ride, your life expectancy drops by 30 years um, just based off of the zip code that you're living in. And that is reflective of a lot of places in our country. It's not just Chicago. Um, What's interesting about our district is that it is an extremely diverse district. It's the bluest district in all of the state of Illinois. It's tied for the uh, the fifth most democratic district in the country. And we have some of the most racially and economically diverse portions. We have the wealthiest of the wealthy and the poorest of the poor in our district. And, and, and just with that, it's, it's astounding to me how reflective it is of the country because you can go to other congressional districts and you could see the same trend happening all across the country. And so um, healthcare should not be a business. It is a human right. It is a fundamental human right. And we should be treating legislation around healthcare as such. You know, that's really important. I have never heard, I've talked to a lot of people about healthcare, but I've never heard it talked about in that context. That puts it in perspective. Like it is, a, it's your right to live as long as you can. Yeah. And, you know, um, This is not just a policy talking point for me. Before I announced my candidacy to run, I served as a national organizer for Physicians for a National Health Program, which is a national nonprofit of 20,000 doctors and medical students all across this country who are fighting to secure a single-payer Medicare for All system. And I traveled to blood-red states like Alabama and Louisiana. I traveled to the ports of entry in San Diego. I traveled to the Rust Belt in this country, working with doctors, medical students, teachers, unions, and everybody is saying the same thing. Healthcare is a purple issue. It's not red. It's not blue. It's about the wealthiest and the privileged few in our country and those who are not privileged and are not wealthy. And it really strikes at the argument of fighting for the soul of our country. Who do we think 
is valuable enough to save their life in our healthcare system? And the answer should be everybody. Everybody is valuable enough. People should not have to cut their blood pressure pills in half or ration out their insulin every single month because they can't afford it. So this is a moral fight for me. And it was one of the reasons, like I said, that I I decided to primary Congressman Davis because he's taken hundreds of thousands of corporate dollars from pharmaceutical companies and private insurance companies while we are sitting with the largest life expectancy gap in our country. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, the incumbent is a man, right? And you'll bring a fresh perspective to that. But I especially like to talk about in the context of, you know, you being a Black woman, right, in this district. Yes. And, you know, representation matters. I think there have only been 70 women of color, I think, elected to Congress since, you know, the mid-60s, 1964. It's crazy. <laughs> really. And, and Shirley Chisholm, I know, it's crazy. And Shirley Chisholm was the f- the first Black woman. Yeah. And that was in 1968. And since then, I think there have been fewer than 50 Black women elected to Congress, right? Absolutely. Um, so what what has it been like on the ground for you? I mean, are people receptive? Are they dismissive? You know, what what's it like? You know, I think people are so energized in our district. Black women are doing the work. We are organizing in our communities. We are outvoting everybody, right? Um, we are being actively and politically engaged. And so this becomes a question of of handing over power and what does power look like and what does leadership look like? I think progressives right now, you know, they keep talking about how Black women are at the heart of the Democratic Party and that we're going to save the country. Well, I think you need to elect more Black women then. Right. right, right. <laughs> That's the case. So um, people have been excited. And and I think that they think it's very gutsy for me to be this young, pushing a lot of these issues to the left. And uh, bringing a perspective, an activist, an organizer, a policymaker perspective to a lot of these issues. Yeah, you know, you hit the nail on the head because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. People are wise to the fact that, you know, Black women vote in you know, the largest, most consistent voting bloc in the Democratic Party, right? right? We saw that in 2016. We saw that in 2018. It's been going on for decades. But, you know, it's starting to get recognition that we are the reliable, the most reliable voting bloc of the Democratic Party. And, you know, people are saying, you know, vote like Black women. You know, but I was just thinking when I look at the numbers of representation for Black women in government, I think, you know, yes, they want our vote, but they don't seem to want our voices. That's right. That's right. And I mean, it's it's different when we are helping everybody else get across the finish line. And, you know, I push back and I reject the notion that all we're good for is voting other Democratic uh, folks in and that our perspectives don't matter. They definitely matter. They matter so much that they actually decide elections because of the way that we turn out. Black women just don't vote the right way, we're the most likely voter to bring other folks with us to the polls, right? So we know how to win elections. Um, We know the temperatures and the pulse of our community. And uh, we bring a breadth of experience and knowledge on how to create sustainable, enduring, and lasting solutions to a lot of these problems. And so while me, I'm a super voter, I'm an active voter, and I never believe that people should just vote on folks by their identity, I am unapologetically Black and unapologetically a woman, um, and representation does matter. And we don't just vote for people for those things, but we should vote 
because bringing this lens to the policy table, it unlocks so many other demographics as well. You know, a a lot of people are focused solely on the 2020 presidential election. And there are a lot of people who are saying that is not really where the real legislative power lies. You know, although we do need a new president, people are saying that local races like yours are where our focus should be. And that focusing too much on the 2020 presidential election is a mistake. Even if Democrats win the White House in 2020, nothing can happen if they don't hold on to the House, you know, or they don't gain seats in the Senate. So your race is in November of 2020. What do you think people should be focusing on between now and next November? You know, I think that the election in 2020, whatever ends up happening, whether it's a presidential election and a lot of these primaries that are happening across the country, I just want to let people know that this is about a return of representative democracy, that it's not just about flipping red states blue, which is extremely important. It's about folks like me who are running in deep, dark blue districts where people think everything is A-OK and it's not. You know, this summer, we had one of the bloodiest weekends in the city of Chicago where 50 people were shot in one weekend. And that's less than 48 hours. They had to close our emergency room doors at the hospital because the trauma doctors were just so overwhelmed with the amount of patients that they were getting. You know, we are not just fighting for our democracy. We are fighting for our lives. And that's why these elections are important. And so, you know, I hope all your listeners get engaged. They register people to get out and vote and understand that 2020 is going to be a game changer. Definitely. Yeah. But you know what they should also do is that they should stay engaged. They should organize, but they should also be asking young women to run for office, young, right. young black women to run for office, young women of color. Right. Because I was just thinking when we were talking about this, you know, how do we get more people like you running for office, right? You know, because when people say get more people engaged, get more people running for office, I don't think a lot of people envision, you know, people like us running for office. Right. You know, how do we get more people to, to say like, yeah, I can do this too. I have a voice. That's right. That's right. And when we lift up the most marginalized corners of our country, when we lift those folks up, everybody gets lifted up too. So Black women winning elections and women of color and women and LGBTQIA, those in the disability rights community, et cetera, when we win, everybody wins. And that's what I I really want people to know is that representation, it, it matters so much. And especially in the Democratic Party, because the way that our party is going, it's far more diversified. It's it's far more intersectional. And that requires uh, for us to rise to that moment and make sure that we're sending in representation. Well, Kina Collins, thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you for your lifetime of activism. Thank you for running, because I know that it's a really hard thing to do. It's a huge sacrifice. And we don't thank our politicians enough for, you know, like giving up their private lives and doing this really, really big thing. So thank you so much. I, I wish you all the luck. Thank you so much for having me. Actually, I don't think you need luck, but... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. The Electorette is independently produced, edited, and managed by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And if you enjoy listening, please do me a favor. Leave a five-star review for The Electorette on iTunes. It's really simple and it's free. And it's one of the best ways to help support The Electorette. Also, please follow The Electorette on social media. And that's at Electorette on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.